Hello and welcome to Co-Creating the New World, a new podcast to connect people and respond to this inquiry. How do we build a world that takes better care of each other? We'll talk about reopening and how to overcome new challenges during this time. We'll help you find meaningful things that transform and rebuild us and our lives during this time. I'm your host, Minda Guhop from Vitality Health. Today, we're talking about opportunities for transformation out of COVID and all else that's happened with Nick Farr and Don Strickland, experienced disaster workers. We met on calls hosted by Burners Without Borders, where people shared about their support projects during COVID. Don, or Peaches, is a community builder in Georgia who provided support during a dual disaster with a tornado hitting her town during the first COVID lockdown. And Nick wrote a hopeful essay about six types of possibilities for transformation out of this long disaster at longdisaster.org. Now, Nick, you worked on the Mexico City earthquake in 2017 and on Katrina with Burners Without Borders, a really innovative disaster organization. From disaster, how do you transform? One of the beautiful things about the Mexico City earthquake that I got to see was how much it's a part of the Mexican culture and identity to come together as a society in times of crisis. There's a there's a saying in Spanish, everybody has their grain of sand to contribute to the beach. And I got to see that. One of the things that I noticed that I'd never experienced before in my life, and I've lived in a lot of different places I lived in, you know, my, even though my hometown is Grand Rapids, Michigan, and I'm living there now, but something was different about Mexico City. The long disaster came out of that in saying that just as the Mexico City earthquake was one example of, of, a, uh, of a disaster with a beginning point and an end point, it's an event, it's a discrete event that occurs and you respond to it. And I think a lot of disaster response has been preparing for responding to those discrete events. That's unsustainable, just like so many things about how modern Western American, however you want to put it, society is organized, is that a lot of the things that have gotten us to this point that have given us very comfortable lives are not sustainable. Hmm. While we may talk about climate change and things like that, the point that I was trying to make with the long disaster, which I think everybody is seeing now in the COVID crisis, is that Responding to discrete events is not a sustainable model. The only way to survive the increasing pace of disasters as they happen is to come together as a community. And the long disaster is is just my way of phrasing that the era of discrete disasters is over. It's all just one big long disaster. Once the COVID crisis may have faded, there are going to be many other crises. We will it is very unlikely, as I see it in our lifetimes, that we will be free of a collective set of crises affecting humanity that we have to develop a response to. And part of the long disaster was that idea of response, is building communities to respond to the next thing that's going to hit us. But now it's just rolling one after the another, and they're simultaneously happening, right? I mean, Don is going to talk about more of that later. Like, we need to have a different way of looking at it and how we respond in our systems and things of that sort. And, and, and that's, that's, that's the funny thing about the difference between COVID response in, say, New Zealand and, uh, I mean, or Vietnam. Uh, let me take Vietnam. Vietnam's a better example. The, the COVID response in Vietnam and the COVID response in the United States. Everybody knows what the parameters are. Everybody knows what you have to do. Wear a mask. Stay inside. If you're feeling sick, don't go out. Don't expose yourself. Vietnam didn't have some radical vaccine that they were waiting for. They did the very simple things. And as a nation, because they have that we're all in this together mentality baked into their, baked into their culture, the COVID crisis in Vietnam was is almost a non-starter. In the United States, we're very individualistic. You will not interfere with my ability to go to a restaurant whenever I want to. And look at the results. And that's what I'm talking about. 
Yeah, it's a cultural um, issue that we're talking about, right? And people don't want to be interrupted in the way that they do things here. I mean, I understand, you know, we, we talk a lot about individual rights and things like that, and those things are good. And those concepts and ideas have brought us to a point of incredible prosperity, and I don't want to disparage it, but every advantage, every every asset has a corresponding liability. And we're seeing that liability right now that, and that's the, 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 that's a gap that I'm identifying. We are in, COVID is a global pandemic, a global crisis. It's the kind of thing that I was envisioning without envisioning a specific global pandemic. But we could have seen that. Global pandemics have happened for as long as we have recorded human history. We know about it. It's not a surprise. It's something that happens. And and the fact that we're arguing, we know what we need to do to crush the pandemic. And as a country, we're not doing it. I, I can't tell you if it's cultural, economic, political, what it is. But we're thinking, I, I think that it's safe to say that if we were more civically minded, and I'm talking about America, when I say we, I'm talking about people in the United States. If we in the United States were more civically minded and aware of the fact that, one, COVID is real, SARS-CoV-2 is real, wearing masks does help the spread, and not engaging in non-essential activities, quarantining is the way forward. I know people talk about business, and, and I don't want to get into too much of a rant about this, but until we crush this pandemic, until we come together and do what we know we need to do, we can't have business as usual. I don't know if it's cultural. Like I said, I don't know if it's cultural or economic or something, but the community spirit that we need to end this crisis just isn't there. And so when the next thing happens, it's just going to be worse. Yeah, I know. I, th I think what you're calling attention to with the long disaster is just um, I need to have stronger um, partnerships, relationships, community, just reimagining those things that we take for granted in a, in a new way, right? Um, and that's what really struck me reading your essay. I really appreciate that and how you started out with that quote, you know, seeing what's happening, you know, and it's, it's people agreeing on the facts of what's happening, right? And then seeing that there are movements, there are communities, there are partnerships, there are relationships being built to address these things in an innovative way, um, things that we saw with the organization that we are all part of um, working with Burners Without Borders. And I really appreciate that. And I appreciate that you also don't just think of it as cultural only. There's a lot of different things happening. And so people are responding to a lot of different things. Um, I think that the culture aspect stands out most to me when I think about Vietnam and, and the difference in their response and in other Asian, Southeast Asian countries. Like I'm from, uh, my family's from Southeast Asia. Uh, we're from the Philippines. And there's a, there's a mix in the culture. If there's a independence and a, a group think that I see there, uh, it's just interesting. And um, yeah, I think the, the long disaster um, that you wrote actually before COVID, right? You wrote this long before this all happened. No, that that's absolutely correct. I, it came out, it, it launched because of, well, I shouldn't say it launched. What happened was in the spring of 2019, I went to Fly Ranch and I, I really hadn't processed what happened in Mexico City. It, it was disaster responders know this, that you, you go through these things and you, you do what you can and you're there for others and you're their rock. And but eventually when it's all over, there's a toll there and that toll has to be paid. I think part of writing the long disaster was paying that toll and doing that emotional processing long after the event. Mm. I I really just after the Mexico City earthquake happened, I wrapped things up. I spent a little bit more time in Mexico. I came back to Michigan and didn't really go back. It wasn't my intent to come back here. 
went out to Fly Ranch and I that's when I started thinking about the idea. And I approached a lot of different people with this thought. I think a lot of this conversation actually emerges from a conversation that I had with Tom Price, uh, really old, old school burner, disastrous burner, an amazing, amazing individual human being. I had no idea who he was. I just sat down at a table. He looked lonely. I said, you know, I don't want to have, have you ever had that experience when you're maybe not one of the cool kids? And you know you're not one of the cool kids and you're in an environment like a cafeteria where there's a bunch of tables and people are eating. And my strategy for that as not one of the cool kids is uh, to find a person who looks lonely and might want some company and say, hey, can I join you for dinner? And everybody out of politeness will say yes. And there's a difference between them saying, yeah, sure, whatever. And yes, please do. Tom is definitely the latter had no idea who he was, just started talking to him like, hey, how'd you end up here? What's what's your story? And we got into a really long conversation about disaster response, the unsustainability of it, the unsustainability of the world. And the the while I don't want to paint Tom as a pessimistic picture, there's a there is a definite strong vein of pessimism that we connected on of, of the state of affairs while still having hope on things. And we connected on that. I jotted down some notes and I connected with a lot of other people. Um, Leah Holland was another person I connected with at that event. And we spent hours and hours and hours talking about these concepts. While everybody was by a fire or partying or gathering, you know, we were, we were off by ourselves, just connecting and rolling through a lot of these different ideas. The Long Disaster is an essay itself. While well, while my name is on it, and I I guess I had quote unquote final cut on it, uh, it's really like anything like the concepts described there in a collaborative effort. I showed that document to 20 people, and 20 people were editors. On um, you know they had full edit rights. They could write, suggest different things. When Burners Without Borders put the link to that Google document in a newsletter just as the COVID crisis was ramping up and they identified it. They said, hi, this is the long disaster. And I didn't know about it. I was, I'm an accountant. So this, this time of year, January, February, some of my is when I'm working, I speaking of things that are not sustainable, working 15, 16, 17 hour days. Yeah, this is your crazy time. <laughs> yeah, this is this is actually my crazy time. And I'm so grateful. I'm so <laughs> grateful to you for encouraging me to take this break, to take a step back and think about this. This is a really energizing exercise for me. And and I can't wait to hear hear about Peaches and everything that uh, and, and have Peaches talk more about all of the great things that that we were that we were communing on right around this time in 2020, at the beginning of 2020. And I'm so grateful that I met both of you out of the COVID. I know a lot of people, COVID has been disastrous. It's ruined their lives. And I feel very, very grateful and privileged that I was able to work through this pandemic, that I was able to assist people through this pandemic uh, using my skill set as an accountant and grateful that that I met the both of you. And so I want to take a moment of gratitude for that and through that whole experience, those meetings that we had, that was the highlight of my week. That was my social hour. That was the time that I got to re-energize. I don't want to get too ahead of myself, but um, I, I do want to express a moment of gratitude for that. Yeah, definitely. Oh my gosh, those. The, that's the thing about disaster, right? It brings people together that might not necessarily have pulled together on a weekly phone call like we did on um, Burners Without Borders for uh, quite a few months, right? And um, I was really excited to meet all of you guys too. You know, I noticed that this happens in disaster. You know, I worked on um, Hurricane Sandy in New York City, and a bunch of us we weren't on a phone call. We were actually on um, social media messenger apps, just like where, connecting. I, I, I hate <laughs> to say this. Wait, wait. Where were you during Hurricane Sandy? Because I was stuck in the financial district doing all sorts of weird things. Oh, I was in Gramercy. I was oh, working okay. at an ad agency back then. I was looking down Fifth Avenue, and I saw all these po- people pointing up at the sky. It was 9 a.m., clear, sunny sky. I was getting off at work, and I was like, what are you guys pointing at? And I looked, 
and there it was. The World Trade Center tower, first tower that got hit. Big black hole. <laughs> yeah, that was the first disaster that I actively worked on. And 800 volunteers, or more actually, pulled together in Manhattan after um, we saw um, everything happening with a hurricane. That was quite a few years later. Um, and we pulled together um, our own efforts since uh, FEMA and all those other organizations were just pulling it together. And, you know, the local community, us, just friends and family, neighbors, we're the ones who really get on the ground, you know, our one, day one on these disasters. And that's something I learned, um, you know, those government organizations, they take a while. So this concept that you're coming up with, talking about not just systems, but just people. I mean, what we're building at Vitality Health is about connecting just people, fellow humans. And um, the cool thing um, about having um, both of you here, Peaches, I'm, you know, you, you've been a passionate um, builder. You worked not only on the Gulf hurricanes in 2020, you yourself experienced a tornado in Georgia during the first day of COVID lockdown. You know about this. And on our calls, you urgently raised the issue of how people need to respond better to multiple crises. I don't know if I could make a list of all the things that I learned. It was kind of just like a sponge that soaks it up because I was so new. Um, It was extremely interesting because just like Nick had expressed um, and then Mindy, you had expressed with your other crises that you found yourself a part of last year in 2020 through Burners Without Borders, the weekly calls, it was so serendipitous and I'm so thankful for that experience, it's definitely what kept me sane during a time when I had walked away from my nine to five job. I had started my own LLC to go and be this independent catastrophe adjuster. And then a pandemic hits right as I'm trying to switch gears and be completely independent with a new, a new set of skills to me. I'd been a flight attendant before <laughs> becoming an insurance adjuster and then leaving that safety net of, of, like I said, a nine to five position to, to, to branch out and become an independent adjuster. And so initially I had just started writing estimates, um, before going on any deployments because of how the weather was going and how that industry works. It's, you know, a lot of volume all at once you get called, you go, and sometimes it takes months or a year. So I was prepared for a year, had set myself up and I was like, I'm just going to go to work with some local contractors and write estimates. And so that's where I was at when yeah, you didn't know what you were getting yourself ready for. <laughs> I did not. Um, I did not. And so those Burners Without Borders calls exposed me to a lot of people with a lot more experience, a lot more knowledge, a lot more specialization in the path that I was already headed, signing on to be the Georgia Burners Without Borders lead. And we had just really gotten our footing I brought on a friend of mine who's very compassionate to be the co-lead. We had completed some brief before lockdown, before COVID really took off in the U.S. That December prior and January, we had completed some homeless um, outreach projects with some warmth distribution and things were going well. And we knew we wanted to be more prepared with some FEMA trainings, ICS trainings. We were starting to look into some of that. And that's where I wanted to take things. And I also wanted to focus more on the environment and things that were close to my heart. So we were really just getting ready. And I was doing it professionally. I was doing it in my volunteer role. And then COVID happened. And I knew more because I'm in rural North Georgia. And I am from here. My family is from here. I have traveled a lot more than a lot of people in this area. I'm connected to a much broader network through Burning Man and my experiences in that community. And then also... With Burners Without Borders, the specific niche of people that that opened me up to on a weekly basis, like you guys mentioned, there we were coming together and it was very grounding, terrifying sometimes hearing what was happening in other communities. And then I'm looking around and in my opinion, um, this area in the South was just really behind Really, I mean, thankfully, the spread wasn't happening on the scale it was in maybe New York or Los Angeles. It's just not the same dynamic. 
Um, but then when lockdown was scheduled, you know, we were preparing for that. We were preparing to go into lockdown and I had a better understanding, thankfully, because of the connections I had through Burners Without Borders and those weekly calls. And I knew what to expect and I knew what was coming, but it felt like a lot of folks, even people in positions of emergency response or the police, um, or the, the government roles around this area, especially in Chattanooga, where the worst of the tornadoes came through, it just did not seem like they were on the same page or that they had had as much even preparation as myself just through community involvement on a community call and being exposed to what was happening in other areas that it was more advanced. Yeah, what did you learn on the community calls? What was it about community and, and just talking with people regularly that had you more prepared than you know, government or, you know, police or people like that. It's interesting. It was. Um, and I think it hits on what Nick had said and what he talks about in The Long Disaster, just being so specialized in our day-to-day that the general preparedness of individual people has, has kind of gone down and left us with some some soft spots that when not just one crisis happens, but when there is a dual crisis Uh, People are kind of frozen in place because their life that they were constructing was was so specified and disjointed sometimes when that one crisis that is so foreign, like I said, we were starting to prepare for a two week, three week mandatory isolated home lockdown unless you were an essential worker, you know, and uh, a lot of people had issues sometimes with that and didn't really follow the rules around here. Um, and Georgia had its own version of what that looked like and what reopening would look like. And in my opinion, it was just a little skewed because I was hearing directly from other people in whether it was New York or L.A. or people who worked in the industry as a nurse, um, exactly what they were experiencing. And I'm like, wow, we're we're not being honest here. We're not being real about what this means. We're not really psychologically prepared for this. Our law enforcement isn't, how are they going to regulate what they've said is now, you know, it just didn't seem practical. It didn't seem enforceable and it didn't seem like people were taking it to heart as a civic responsibility, which was. And now we're just talking about COVID, right? Yes. Just the COVID part, much less the tornado Mm -hmm. part. (laughs) Yes. And that's in huge contrast to what I've experienced through my community at Burning Man, right? Civic engagement is important and, you know, you're, you're supposed to interact with your neighbor and it, and it fosters such a a communal spirit that even if multiple things are happening at once, which they do, whether it's a dust storm or someone gets injured or, um, you know, whatever, whatever it might be, uh, you by default, fall back on that civic engagement and your neighbor and and what resources do you have and and if someone's telling you that this is happening and it's real and you need to wear a mask and whatever else you might hear from a a regular person or someone with more specialty like a nurse or um, scientists you know we were all exposed to high level people whether they worked in virology or whether they worked pandemics or whether they worked um, in other catastrophes it felt like I could really put my faith in these other people because not only were they bringing a lot of specialty education and experience to the table, we had that common thread of, oh, they're a burner or they know about the culture. So it just felt like people were being really real in real time with what was happening in their communities. And I could take those bits of information and apply it to what was happening here in my community with a lot of people who maybe weren't exposed to that level of diverse experience and expertise. You know, I want to pause there for a moment you know, we've talked about this organization supporting innovative disaster relief, Burners Without Borders, but we haven't talked about the organization that's it basically connected and that's the canvas for this work, Burning Man. Now, when people think about Burning Man, they don't think about civic engagement. <laughs> what do they think about? They think about parties, Partying. drugs, dancing. <laughs> and I think, you know, people don't realize that what Burning Man actually is, is an experiment in a new world. Creating, right? Creating a new world that um, where people really, truly support one another. And that's really the attraction of this um, community 
I even had a friend who was ready to just go dance and party, and that was Burning Man to him his first year. <laughs> and he came out being this incredibly idealistic community builder and wasn't <laughs> about that stuff at all. It's so funny. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. So, like, you know, I'd love actually for both of you to talk about what you've learned that was so um, helpful for your work, you know, Peaches and during the tornado and Nick during the earthquake and Katrina and the other work. I mean, I know that for me, um, when you voluntarily go into um, the desert at Black Rock, you have to be prepared. The thing about wearing masks and goggles, that's a that's what you have to do. That's what they should do well there, right? And so this, yeah. this COVID thing is like, you know, it's par for the course already for, for many of us. But what did you guys learn just in a, in a general way? So people who haven't been to Burning Man or, or even kind of turned off or scared by that culture, it's not a bunch of druggies. Let's look at the, you know, the the community building and civic engagement part of that. I, I mean, if I may, I even want to just take a further step back that if you if you look at Instagram or you look at movies or documentaries of Burning Man, it's all beautiful or very affluent uh, young people who are very well dressed and costumed. And I would almost say that that's not even a majority of the people that head to Black Rock City. But if you've never been and that's all you see on Instagram is, you know, very svelte, tall models <laughs> and costumes prancing around, you might think, I'm not pretty enough. I'm not cool enough to go to that party. And that's not at all what Burning Man is. That's right. And and it's it's and I, I know it's hard to get to Black Rock City. And I there's a there's a segment of people who think that the heart and soul of Burning Man is actually in the regional events that tend to be much more inclusive and welcoming and, and perhaps don't have the same kind of obstacles in getting to them as, uh, as that. But the, the beautiful thing that I see about Black Rock City is it's a different society. The rules of society are different. There's no, you don't use, I mean, yes, you can buy ice. There, there are limited exceptions, but you don't live in Black Rock City mediated by financial transactions, by class, by, I mean, there is a class structure at Black Rock City. I'm not saying there isn't, but it's a different way of living. I think the, the key lesson for the key lesson for quote unquote long disaster response is communal effort, mm. civic responsibility. If I see somebody that is in trouble in perhaps in modern society, if you see somebody in trouble, you'll call the emergency services because that's their job and they deal with it. You wouldn't intervene on your own. If you see somebody in trouble at Black Rock City and you have the capacity to help, you will go help. Nobody feels alone out there. The, the, the reconstructing the ideas of what it is like to be living in a city is the thing that I find most magical about Burning Man. Everybody's there to give a gift, to participate, to practice a different way of living with our fellow humans. Yeah, we start off on a blank canvas together, literally this blank <laughs> desert. Right. Yeah, I it's think something I can, about that equalizes people. Go ahead. Sorry. I don't. think I can sum up. Oh no, you're fine. Um, I think I can sum up in a way that really clicked for me what Nick was saying and how it translates from Burning Man to to the default, as we would call it, um, when we're when we're not either at that event or another burn. Um, and it's the concept that there is no they. Mm. When you see the thing. Or you feel that thing, whether it's a, a piece of, you know, rubbish blowing across the street, whether you're at Burning Man or at home or at your friends or at a strangers or out in public on the street. Um, there are so many they's in the default. Like he was saying, oh, we call this number because that's their job. Well, yes. But the one of the biggest thing that I learned that really sunk in 
and it didn't, it wasn't like in one day, but um, there is no they. So there's, there's you in that moment and you make decisions on stepping up or stepping aside or stepping back or stepping forward or reaching out verbally or physically or whatever it is. And, and so when you really internalize the concept that there is no they, and you're asking yourself, well, who's in charge here? You know, right. And um, who are the other people who are going to take care of this? Yeah. And yeah. you take that with you out of the event and you apply it and you start to apply it more and more and more. When you get to the point that you're living the playa year round in your very small, what you would consider maybe mundane actions and interactions and levels of responsibility. And I love the way that you can take that word and turn it into responding with all of my ability to whether it's a piece of trash or someone's hurt or injured or a crisis, you know, taking that there is no they and how can I respond with all of my ability to this blank? That's probably the, the biggest thing I can say in very simple terms from Burning Man, the event, the culture, the regionals, and applying it outward. That's so interesting to think about it this way you know for people who are not familiar with what regionals are they're like little mini burning mans in the local communities organized more locally so they're smaller and you know i i tend to think about what we're going through with covid is kind of like a big burning man <laughs> and, sure. right it's like i never felt yeah. so at home with all the masking <laughs> <laughs> you well, know we all have to take responsibility too right and there's Let's be honest, there's a lot of people who don't want to take responsibility still. They still want to think about they. They still blame, um, you know, the, the, the they's, the other people who are supposed to help solve this issue. Instead of looking at um, what you yourself might consider doing and be empowered in your own self to do, right? And I think... America in general is just a lot of different types of people. Um, there's isolation, right? There are people who really just don't talk to other people that much or interact with people um, different from themselves. It can be the opposite in cities where all you're doing is clashing with other kinds of people, right? But I come back to this idea of um, cultural issues and what is our relationship to responding to taking care of ourselves and responding to taking care of other people. You know, I know what drew me to Burning Man is an inquiry I've always had long before my my participation in that event. And that is really like, how do we take better care of each other? You know, how do we um, connect better? It's just something, as someone who comes from a Filipino-American culture, I grew up being really connected to people because that's our culture. Family is everything. Connecting to people, emotional connection. Um, it was pretty um, jarring for me to enter American schools and to see that people didn't always operate that way. I felt the shock of that from kindergarten all the way through my grad school work. And it was striking to me. So I mentioned this because I think this long disaster thinking, right, this idea of um, how we need to respond in a different way, that Burning Man is just such a great um, analogy for, and, you know, we, we voluntarily go into a disaster situation in a way and, <laughs> you know, end up having to build a community, right? Both of these things, long disaster, the burner community, it strikes me as a good place for people to think about and develop how to connect culturally, right? Because building community between ourselves, it, there's a power that that it has that um, I don't think everyone has really explored, especially since, you know, community, the idea of community can be a brittle kind of thing, you know? Like there are people who partner and then they break up in their partnerships, whether it's romantic or business or whatever it is. So how do we overcome the things that get between us in a way that takes partnership and community here in our world a little higher? 
I think that is, you know, and, and Nick, tell me if I'm wrong, but I think that's really the calling that you're writing about in, in long, in the long disaster, right? Like this um, connection with, with one, with each other as disaster preparedness. Um, you know, it's, it, it, there's a, there's tools, there's ways of being that are very simple that we can take away and just do. Um, Actually, you and I were talking about something you learned very simple um, in Mexico City. Talking to or borrowing something from a neighbor. Can you can you uh, talk about that again? Yeah, no, of course. I so like I said before, I've lived in a lot of different places, and pretty much everywhere I've lived, even the block that I grew up on and lived, and I, I'm very fortunate, grateful. That I was able to basically grow up in the same house in the same neighborhood, but you know, I knew on my little cul-de-sac there's maybe ten houses, and I knew that people lived in three of them, and that was my entire childhood, 18, 20 years. Um, Long time. Even though I and, and and I even though I lived I lived less than a, I live a kilometer away from that street now, I still don't know them, but it, it, this was the same pattern everywhere, you know. Even, with perhaps the one exception of living in the residence halls in college, I didn't know my next door neighbors. Mm. When I, you know, when I moved to San Francisco, the first place I lived after college, uh, I, I knew the neighbors across the street because they made pot brownies, but that was about it. Um, and there was always a party going on and they were friendly and, you know, they let you come over. Same, but same thing, Los Angeles, New York. If I lived in an apartment building, I don't know who was on either side of my apartment. If I lived in a standalone building, I didn't know who was on either side of my standalone building. And I moved to Mexico City. And when I moved into the apartment building where my apartment still is, uh, people stopped me and said, hey, are you the, the person that lives in? in apartment five and i said yes yes mm-hmm. i am it's like oh hi you know where were you from we, we started having conversations and then they added me to the group chat the you know the the group um now we use signal groups it was what the equivalent app that everybody in mexico was using at the time uh so you had like a little online to, chat going on yeah no every wow. every building every and that's that's actually one of the things that that one of the things that i think people in the United States don't realize is that in many ways, daily life in other countries, people who are, who are not nearly as privileged are often a lot more technologically advanced. You know, whereas in the United States, we might have a laptop and a cell phone and a TV and you mean, a lot of people in developing countries have that one cell phone that does all of those things. Mm. And that's how the society works. That one smartphone that act, that is their computer, that is their TV, that is their communications device. Um, and, and it's been that way for even longer than that's been common here in the U S and then there was, so there was a building group chat and they added me to the building group chat. And then I, over the course of living there less than a year, got to know all but one of the families that were living in my apartment building and, and would have, you know, I would, they would, they would invite me into their homes and they would say, you know, tell me a little bit more about your, Oh, I just made tea. I just made lunch. The, you don't know what food culture is until you've lived for a while in Mexico. In, in Mexico, culturally, they have six meals throughout the day. Now, Now you don't have, now not everyone has six meals every day, but depending on social context, depending on different things like that, and, and every meal is social. There's the concept of provecho. If you're walking into a room and somebody is eating, you say provecho. You, you acknowledge that. And that, that's part of the, the community culture. But the, the big key tip that I take away from that is if you don't know where to begin with long disaster response, go meet your next door neighbor. I know that's a little bit difficult in the pandemic now, but you can write them a letter. Hmm. You know, you, you, I, you, you can, 
you can leave a note on their door. Hi, I'm I'm so and so. I'm your next door neighbor. I just wanted to say hi. I, I want to be respectful. I don't want to, you know, invade your space at this time. If you know your next door neighbor, borrow something from them. If you know your next door neighbor, do you know the person across the street? Do you know everybody on your block? There's always a place to begin there. And I think that's my one tip. If you don't know where to begin is introduce yourself to your next door neighbor. Yeah, it's so funny. I was just talking on Facebook with somebody who asked, is it socially appropriate for me to approach my neighbor? (laughs) I was like, some people don't even think it's like socially appropriate. I was like, wow, wow. I think um, (laughs) I actually put up a flyer in my building a few uh, months ago saying, hey, we're in um, a crazy time right now. I want to get to know each other. Let's do a Zoom call. And I put my my, uh, email there. Um, I think only one person emailed me in a few months. So I like that idea of like more direct, like just maybe – you know, writing um, a letter and putting on their actual door rather than by the mailboxes like I did, you know. But there's just something about, like, how do people really connect? Borrowing stuff from people, you know, a ladder, even just sharing that you have something like that to, I mean, I don't know. This, these are things that we, we could think through, right? Social norms. <laughs> no, I, I... Absolutely. I, I'm, I'd be interested to hear what Peaches has to say about that. They're changing so much, right? I think that was the most shocking thing um, when the dual crisis situation happened last year in really March and April. Um, and so while I had a grasp on how those social norms were changing pretty rapidly in places yeah. like New York, which is extremely different than rural northwest georgia or chattanooga um the tornadoes did rip through some rural areas uh which is always a little better if they can go through a field instead of a subdivision but don can you take us there for a moment bring us to that moment when you realize the tornadoes were tearing through because you had some interesting things to say about that and how yeah. you all help each other. And it's crazy because it really does. You know, I know we didn't know exactly where our conversations were going to go as we explored, you know, our newfound connection and how to care better for each other. And with just talking about whether it's borrowing things, feeding each other, changing social norms during this time. Um, when it was happening, so as we talked about, as Nick mentioned, you know, we have all these these accessible tools at our disposal. Um, but here at my house, I'm I'm in a very rural, very small place that we don't even have a four way stop, you know, and we decided not to have cable. We just have our phones and we were preparing for lockdown. So we went to the you know, we try to do all of our loose odds and ends. We were still essential workers, so we could go out for work. And we did have a large sense of civic responsibility. So we wanted to be the best example of what we could be based on our knowledge and our skill set during that time. So that if if even just a little bit, we might be an example of leadership on how to move forward during lockdown and, and be respectful and be adhering to very basic, simple things that everyone can do to help slow the spread of COVID so that maybe it wouldn't be so bad here as I was seeing elsewhere. Um, but then the tornado happened. So we were sitting down to have dinner and because we weren't, we knew this, that there were going to be bad storms, but we didn't know all of a sudden within the, the changing of just like an hour or so that we were in the direct path of what could be really severe and likely tornadoes because there had just been uh, notice of very deadly and very uh, severe tornadoes ripping through, I think it was Mississippi and Alabama. I want to say it was something crazy, like 69 miles long or something like that. I think it was the number fifth longest trail. Wow. Of- so we were unaware that was happening in real time. And the alarms weren't going off here yet. But my family members, which we we chat occasionally, we're not daily, you know, hour long conversation people. But I got multiple calls while we were sitting at dinner and we were preparing, like I said, just to kind of go into lockdown mode and be at home. And we'd gotten our groceries and uh, 
I look at my phone and I'm like, oh my gosh, my family's like asking me what our plan is. And and they had been in, in this area when other tornadoes had come through. I had not. So this is my first go round with. So tornadoes. they knew. You were they knew. Yeah. <laughs> and so they were just checking on me, you know, kind of like that. Check on your neighbor, or borrow something or whatever. This is family. So it was really, but it was odd to me because it had never happened that way. I was like, oh, this must be going to be more. So, un- you know. And you didn't have a TV. You weren't watching yeah, all we weren't horror watching. news. <laughs> what could mm-hmm. happen? Yeah. Um, we were, we knew later in the evening around maybe 9, 10 p.m. it was going to get pretty bad that we should mm-hmm. be prepared for that. But we were just sitting down to eat and I was like, okay, we need, we need to take this more serious. And we checked and we're like, oh, we're, we're in that bad strip. Okay. How bad is this going to be? And that's when we looked in to see how bad it had been in. Um, you know, the trail, the the storm trail. We're like, oof. So we only had maybe 30 minutes to make some decisions. And maybe you always think that there's that you're gonna do better with that. And maybe people who've been through it before um are more prepared. Unfortunately, we just really weren't prepared um because all of our focus had gone to lockdown. Right, to COVID. <laughs> Masks. Um <laughs> So we just, we, the way we thought about it is like, well, you know, we have a cellar that's really gross and wet. We can go there with the dog and um, maybe take our essential communication tools. Um, Or we could hop in the truck and head south out of the direct path. So that's what we decided to do because we wanted to be functional. We, we're in that industry. I was working with local contractors. My partner was um, an inspector and, and did tarping services for roofs. Um, And so we knew we were about to be really busy potentially. And Mm. um, it was just like a coin toss. We'd be just about as safe sitting here in the house in our most, um, protected areas or drive directly south out of the direct storm path. So that's what we did. And as we got, you know, a little, a little ways away, the alarm started sounding. It was really surreal because it had just gotten dark. The actual, you know, touchdown of tornado warnings was going off. My family was asking, you know, what we were doing. We told them, but then we realized that if we came back home and our house wasn't here, it's lockdown. Like, and, and as we drove away, like nothing is open. It mm. feels like we're doing something wrong. Wow. Being, you know, being out. It was, it was really strange. Thankfully we came home. Everything here was fine, but with, within a few miles, there was severe damage. And then about a 20 minute drive North where the, the worst part of the tornadoes came through is actually the contractor I was working with at the time, their neighborhood was ground zero. So we knew wow. within a few hours that we were getting up early and we were heading straight north and we were bringing as many tarps as we could purchase um, with us because of how bad it was. Wow. How did you purchase tarps? With everything uh, <laughs> well, the hardware store was open there. They're, you know, they were an essential business and um, all the tarps were bought up in their closest area. Most people couldn't even get out. Um, the roads are, you know, the roads are bad. They weren't clear. The power lines were down. It was a very dangerous situation. It was still um, kind of drizzly and gross. Uh, so I just went to my local store because thankfully we were about 20, 30 minutes out um, down the highway from where those storms ripped through. And so it was crazy seeing everyone is like a little in shock of the fact that everyone knows that this has just happened. It's Easter weekend. It's the first day of a lockdown during a pandemic in an area where for whatever, you know, as Nick mentioned, whatever those reasons are, whether it's cultural, political, even just a basic understanding of virology, um, people were kind of approaching it in many, many different ways. And so if people were out at that time, they were supposed to be an essential worker and people who were working, they were like, okay, I'm at work. There's this pandemic. We're going into this lockdown. Now we've had tornadoes. And so you see all the contractors, all the essential work, everybody is just headed up, right? They're headed up. And I think wow, I bought in a way they're almost like already prepared. <laughs> it, but it was those people in the community, right? right? You weren't seeing, you weren't seeing as much bigger entity involvement at that point. We're talking within eight hours of Local. the work of the Yeah. 
And so I think I bought $1,100 of tarps and they were so nice. They helped load them into my truck. One guy wanted to donate to me right away. It was just, it was amazing to see just people seeing, okay, people are still going to go and help each other even during a lockdown, but it did hinder a lot of people. And I realized that we were unprepared with my organization, even though we were headed into a let's get more educated on how to respond to disasters let's get some training let's get some things going um nobody and i can't blame them right nobody was like how do i help how do i come out because no one was certain how to do that in a lockdown situation even the people who were affected in that area where they're you know the second story of their home is just missing or they pulled their neighbor out of their shower and had them in their garage. I mean, like an old lady, right? Um, It's like, oh gosh, are we inadvertently spreading this virus? But we have to respond immediately to the most immediate concerns about getting her out of the weather, getting her in a safe place. It was just, it was very hard for a lot of people to make decisions. And, And that's how I really fell back on a lot of the things I learned at Burning Man, where there is no they. I need to do what I'm here to do, which is to drop off these tarps. And then we deployed a solar trailer footprint project. We deployed Wait, a solar you guys, trailer. Were you guys um, social distancing and masking and all that stuff? or was well, I was. Just- I was. Yes, I was. And I saw a lot of folks who weren't, unfortunately, even within the you know fire department, first responder, police. I had to be assertive. In a Everyone was new way. to this. Everyone was so new to it. And like I said, a lot of those folks just didn't have some of the exposure or the knowledge that maybe I was gleaning from more experienced or different places in this country or the world that were already a few weeks or months ahead of the situation regarding the pandemic. You know, I want to be present to something for here for a moment. If your family hadn't been calling you on the phone... Right. And again, you don't have TV. You didn't have anything from the news blasting at you. You had your your parents call you on the phone. And it was those calls that had you, the person who ended up taking care of a whole bunch of other people, get going because you were fine. I mean, (laughs) pretty daring to go and drive away from the storm, you know, but that's just really cool. Yeah, definitely, definitely set off some bells in my head, even though I I thought I was on the right page. It definitely was an adjustment moment. Yeah. I mean, how many people nowadays have things like phone trees? Do you remember that from like elementary school or even like your first days at work where people would call each other if there was an emergency or a shutdown or snow? Do you guys remember those things? I don't know. Maybe maybe just it was my school when I was growing up. We still had them at my work. So, um, but we're kind of in that industry of when storms happen, we we respond. And Nick, what were you gonna say? I I was gonna say that I I I don't want to date myself, but yeah, I remember that. And I thank you for Peaches for saying that, revealing that 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 was a part of my childhood is not dating myself. And that's actually an interesting thing is that was one of the fastest ways we could learn who we couldn't rely on is who didn't do their job in calling everybody else down the phone tree. Hmm. It's funny how we we might want to explain how that concept works for your listeners. Yeah. So phone trees, people have um, been assigned within a group. Like when I was in school, it was your class where um, I had one or two people I was assigned to call after Somebody else called me, and it would start with the teacher or the principal saying, okay, we're going to have a snowstorm, and we're shutting down and not having school today, right? And we'd get the calls starting at like 5 a.m., 6 a.m. in the morning, and teacher, principal calls teacher, teacher calls parent one, parent one calls parent two, parent two calls parent three, et cetera, et cetera, until the entire class is notified. And obviously, if there's a break in the chain, there's potentially a whole group of people who won't know what happened. So there has to be someone who's also checking up and making sure. Um, I'm not really sure how we did that, but somehow there was some sort of backup to make sure that if the chain got broken, that people still got the message, right? 
And it's funny how these um, things are very useful. A phone tree is very useful during COVID, right? No contact. <laughs> yeah. Physical contact. Yeah. Socially distanced. Yeah. And even the concept itself, I think, extends out in terms of are we going to, how are we going to check in our neighbors? You know, who are the people who are vulnerable in our, on our block? The, one of the points of the long disaster is that the emergency services that are, you know, we call them heroes and essential workers and then bulk when we want to pay them more, uh, the, uh, that concept of, okay, I accept responsibility to check up on these people in my neighborhood who do I know to be elderly, these people who I know to have mobility issues, these people who I know live check to check and, you know, maybe their heat was cut off, that sort of thing. Right. That concept you can apply right now. And it's a little bit different than being, say, on a next door app, right, where people might be in the same neighborhood, but they don't necessarily have this sort of sense of responsibility. I mean, they might during a, an emergency, but social media in general tends to be very fragmented, right? While a phone tree, there's a more of a sense of responsibility. Like if you don't talk to this person, other people are not going to get the message. You really need to try and be on top of that. I mean, I feel like a, a WhatsApp group or a Signal is probably a, a slightly better, more closer group. I don't know. What do you guys think? I don't use those, so I wouldn't have any experience with that. And I right. have had experiences with a lot of the folks I'm surrounded by not even having a smartphone. So I think we'd have to go a little more old school. <laughs> Yeah, that's a big issue. Not everyone has these things that people in the cities totally take for granted, right? Mm-hmm. I'm trying to think. Um, well, but one of the things, and, and I don't, this is not every small town everywhere, but in smaller towns, everybody already knows everybody else. Maybe they're not friendly. Maybe they're not, you know, buddy-buddy. But the social networks of smaller towns are much more readily apparent to those within them than in a big city. Yeah, that's true. And so and, and that's there's, that's the thing about technology is that maybe not everybody out in the country has proper cell phone service or the Internet. Maybe that's just not a good tool in those environments, you know, outside of Mexico City. um, in much smaller, much more rural areas where everybody already knows everybody else, there are lots of different other methods of communication. And the point that I'm trying to get at is you can't, there's a story that is germane here. The head of, the very popular head of the person who founded our, um, our local cable access channel uh, went to I think it was, let's just say Kenya, rural Kenya. And he had, this was back in the 90s, and he had all sorts of advanced communications technologies. And this NGO said this this large uh, tribe needs a way to, you know, communicate to all the villagers. And he's like, oh, well, we're going to get everybody, we're going to get radios, and we're going to get all this other stuff, and we're going to get, you know, all this advanced technology, and we're going to teach people how to use it. And they they came through with a very you know, big set of things. And the elders sat by and they listened to the very big presentation. And the chief said, can we get a bell? (laughs) So that when I want to have a meeting with everybody, I can ring the bell, a bell that can be heard from a kilometer away. Mm. Because remember, there's no roads, there's no passive noise in an urban and in in a rural environment like that in a valley and that was the solution that they came up with can i get a bell and there's actually a a wall there's there's a memorial uh, work of art in my town that's that's devoted to that concept but we have whenever we think about technology we have to think especially knowing that all of these things can fail at any time for whatever reason 
would we maybe be better off with a bell? Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> There's no tool that's a silver bullet, right? It's in the end, us connecting with each other and figuring out what is the right recipe for our particular group, it seems. How do we do that? How do we really connect? Yeah. Something to uh, for us to just be really present with in whatever group we're in, right? I would say, based on my experience, going straight into the heart of, you know, ground zero during the tornado in Chattanooga and having it be locked down and having it be a very new way of being, um, I think the number one thing is just a willingness to adapt to the new environment like in that moment and to be okay with other people's like level of need or lack or uh, concern typically, you know, with the virus when I say that, uh, cause it was odd. It was odd that I had to say to a police official, can you please stand further back or, you know, just, just requesting that distance because I was trying very hard to adopt instantly this new way of being. So I think that's a huge tool that if people can keep that in the back of their mind and we do that at Burning Man from the time we enter, we say, how how am I going to be in this way, in this environment now, having that willingness to adapt? Right, the willingness to adapt. There's a word that perfectly encapsulates that, resilience, mm. right? Resilience, to be able to recover or to adjust after stress or misfortune or change. It's a very popular word, you know, and people I think tend to think about it as repairing what's, you know, gotten, you know, on what needs to be repaired. But, you know, I come from a psychology background and, and when we talk about in positive psychology, resilience is about building on your strengths and growing tools and systems that allow you to actually get stronger from adversity which is what I was talking about actually at the beginning of this call. The, our inquiry that we're having right now is how do we take better care of each other? What new tools and systems could we learn? And maybe even just simply a question, how does our particular neighborhood connect so we can take better care of each other? You know, just sitting with that question, how do you do that? How do we do that? I, I I don't want to give an answer. I think that's something that everybody needs to examine and look at for themselves. Try something, fail. Yeah. Try another thing, maybe fail at that. I, I just like to leave that not as a rhetorical question, but just as an open question that we all need to contemplate in our own times, in our own ways in our own corners of this big, beautiful blue planet. Open yeah. and evolving. It's that willingness to experiment, I think. I just want to return to that really wonderful quote from your website, Nick. This is an extraordinary time of vital transformative movements and also a nightmarish time. And full engagement requires the ability to perceive both. Right? I think that's a really great place to stand and a really great place to just think about this question. So, um, yeah, if you have any last thoughts, I'd love to hear it. And um, then we can close. Peaches, did you have anything you were wanting to say? Thank you so much for having me on and being able to spend time with you guys and just chat and consider things like this based on our own experience and the experiences that we'll have in the future, I think where I would leave it is thank you for reiterating that quote, because for me, I've had a harder time after all of these things that happened that in the moment I was able to respond to. Um, but that resilience and the looking at not just the positive response, but also the horror of it at the same time. 
I think that is a new skill set that I and I can't think of anyone else at this time won't need moving forward and how to balance the two and find your way forward, even if that means you go two steps backwards or a little to the left or right, or you just kind of sit in place for a moment. Mm. Because this isn't going away. And I think that's at the heart of the long disaster, whether it's a personal crisis or a community or a natural disaster or a pandemic, there's always going to be those things. And there is always the beauty and the need and the horror in it all. And being able to balance that and move forward. I think that is a huge takeaway from this call and what Nick wrote and what we've experienced globally uh, moving forward that I would take with myself. Awesome. Well, you guys, I'm so thankful to, to hear from your experiences. And I hope we can talk some talk again some more because I, I uh, per Nick's point, this long disaster is not going away. <laughs> not going away. So I think we're going to have more chats about this. Would love to have you guys back, come back at some point. And, you know, in the meantime, I'm just going to share that um, our mobile app is coming out this year. And I would love to see if this is a solution that works for you guys or for other people who are listening. And, you know, again, it's not about the tool. What it comes down to is, is a community and the people. And Vitality Health is really just as much about the people as it is about an app. So just going to close with that and say thank you. We'll talk soon. Nick Farr and Don Strickland, thank you. Have a great one. Thank you.